This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. We are continuing our walk through the ethics of liberty, which is, in a sense, Murray Rothbard's second real treatise. His first one, of course, is Economics Treatise, uh, Man, Economy, and State. And I've heard some people refer to the ethics of liberty as his normative or ethical treatise. And if you have been following along, you will recall that in the the opening show, and we're going to take four shows with this book because I think it's important enough to do so. But in our opening show of this book, we had uh, Walter Block join us and go through some of the natural law concepts that uh, with which Rothbard opens the book. So we went through the first few chapters there, really delving into uh, the uh, ontological and deontological underpinnings of where Rothbard was coming from. And then in the second show, we had Stephen Kinsella, and we walked through really some of the specifics laid out in part two of this book. And in particular, we went through uh, the chapters on aggression and the nature of aggression. We went through the chapters on the chapter, I should say, on proportionality, which is a very difficult subject in and of itself and something I think uh, which constitutes a pretty big blind spot for a lot of systems of law or theories of law, including libertarianism. And we finish that up by going into the the, uh, chapter on contracts. And of course, Murray Rothbard channeling Bill Evers, who's still alive and kicking out at Stanford, uh, came up with a whole different way of looking at contracts where it's not so much about the promise and the breach but rather whether you've transferred title or not. And so under libertarian ethics or libertarian law, Rothbard argued that, you know, just not living up to a promise doesn't mean you took someone's property or you committed aggression against them. So we ought to look at contracts very differently. So to finish up uh, looking at part two of this book and some of the individual chapters, which are pretty discreet and tackle different subjects, and also to get into part three, which is really interesting, the state versus liberty, I brought on our own Ryan McMakin, who is, of course, many of you know as the editor of Mises.org, but also a thoroughgoing Rothbardian. So, Ryan, with all that lengthy introduction, welcome to you. Happy Friday. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And, you know, next week we're going to finish the book with uh, Roberta Madungo from the uh, University of Rome in Italy. And she's written quite a bit in her own work about Rothbard and his ethical system. So if you're interested in this book and, and you're enjoying it, you're reading along, you've been thinking about reading it, uh, be sure to listen to these shows because you're going to get a much better sense of it. And Ryan, I know that in part two, uh, there are some individual chapters on children's rights uh, on lying and defamation, on blackmail, on lifeboat situations, on the rights of animals. And a lot of these, you know, where Rothbard was writing them is kind of a what if, you know, a really philosophical take on these. A lot of these came back to cause him some grief in his career because the positions he took were and are considered quite radical. Yeah, I think it's part two that uh, has produced uh, perhaps the title infamous for the ethics of liberty. And people looking to hate on Rothbard or hate on the Mises Institute will often go into part two here and come up with some quotations that uh, make Rothbard look monstrous about the idea that, uh, well, maybe the parents have homesteaded the children and should be able to buy and sell them. And a lot of these things taken out of context or uh, without appreciating what Rothbard, I think, is trying to do with this piece 
makes it look like he's making extremely normative statements like it's a good thing if parents are, are buying and selling their children and things like that. So <laughs> I think you got to approach this part of the book uh, with an appreciation of the fact that Rothbard's trying to address some issues that nobody else was talking about at the time. And keep in mind that you, you can read this and he's trying to start a conversation, a debate without you thinking that, well, either you agree with this, you're not really a libertarian. And I, I don't think Rothbard's making that point either. You know, Ryan, why don't we start with the section on abortion, uh, which constitutes basically a chapter in the book on, on women's rights and children's rights. And so Murray Rothbard lays out what we would today call a definitely pro-choice case. Nobody has a right, including a fetus, to aggress against a woman by forcing her to carry it to term you know, or to care for it after it was born. So he gets into some very tough uh, human normative questions here. And while, you know, I wonder sometimes, Ryan, were he alive today, I don't think he would change the position on abortion from a deontological perspective. And Walter Block, of course, a, a great uh, protege of his, still maintains a very strident pro-choice position. But I do wonder if Murray would regret a little bit sort of elbowing out uh, the role of religion in creating a more just and libertarian society because, of course, a lot of this book itself is based on uh, Thomas Aquinas. Yes. Well, he, he takes the view that you'll definitely hear repeated around. Now, in, in my experience, it's it's kind of half and half in terms of people who will self-identify as libertarian and who will say – I'm a libertarian. Of course, there are lots of people who kind of have pretty laissez-faire views who don't self-identify that way, but people take a very conscious view of this and might think of themselves as Rothbardian or so on. You'll generally hear the line, right, is that it's uh, basically a form of trespass that uh, the baby is engaging in by insisting that the woman not be able to do anything to free herself of this person uh, that has claimed her body for nourishment. And that the, then the, the natural conclusion you draw from that is that you have to let the woman do whatever she wants to do in terms of reclaiming her body from this trespass. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a summary. Uh, you could phrase it different ways, of course, to... Uh, make one side or the other look a little bit more uh, humanist in this regards. But I think that's the core of it. I think, I think the idea is that you own your body and that just the fact that this person shows up in your body uh, through natural biological processes doesn't mean then that that new person has a right to take up residence in your body for uh, a multitude of months. And so if you then determine that you don't want this person using your body for these purposes anymore, um, you can get rid of that person. Now, uh, it's, it's real hard to read this without thinking of it in terms of Walter's uh, theory about how there are two morally different uh, things working here, right? Is that if you're just removing the person, that's morally different than attempting to actually kill the person. And and I don't know what Rothbard has said about that, uh, but that's an important distinction. So you could read into this then the idea that if the, the purpose of uh, ending the pregnancy is just to take the person out of your body so that they're no longer, quote unquote, trespassing, 
then that could be done in certain instances without killing the baby, right? Is that if you did it, uh, say, seven months in, the baby could still be viable and then could uh, be adopted by someone else and hooked up to machines and put in ICU and then still survive. So then that person wouldn't necessarily be necessary for bringing about the death of that person. But the, but the fundamental issue here is, does the baby have a right to reside in the woman's body? Now, this brings me to the issue of the lifeboat situations. I wish they had actually just put these chapters right next to each other in the book, because essentially it strikes me as a lifeboat type argument, right? Mm -hmm. The woman's body is essentially a lifeboat for the baby. So the question is, can the baby use the woman's body as a lifeboat? And is the lifeboat owner, i.e. the woman, able to then refuse admittance to the lifeboat, uh, to throw a person out of the lifeboat. And I think those arguments are pretty pretty much the same. I think if you're going to discuss these issues, you might as well just discuss the issue of abortion together with the lifeboat situation, because I think they're basically the same. Um, and so people then uh, read this, and they might then be against abortion for a variety of reasons, which uh, we've discussed a little bit uh, on the site, but we don't take a position on abortion at Mises.org. But we have noted that depending on your view of when does a child obtain personhood and what sort of rights do they have, that could definitely color your view of abortion. And Rothbard is taking an absolutist view here on uh, the woman's control of the body and that any uh, forced, quote-unquote, usage of her body constitutes trespass. So he then follows that logically to, through a variety of different steps within this chapter in terms of what then is the parent's obligation to the child even after the child is born. And then people, they have a lot of objections to that as well. Uh, because this could lead you to issues of, well, the parent can uh, put the child up for adoption at any point or could sell the child to another person um, or could simply uh, refuse uh, to feed the child. Now, this brings in other uh, freedoms for the child as well. So he's not saying that the child has an obligation to stick around if the parents aren't uh, feeding the child. The child then has a right at any time to run away or to find new parents uh, and to take his own actions to to free himself from the parent. But what this keeps kind of bringing me back to are issues of, well, what, what happens when you're talking about a severely retarded person who's like physically incapable of walking away or feeding himself or really asserting personhood in traditional ways that we would consider characteristics of really asserting your own freedom? And he doesn't address any of that. So what it ends up then being is, is a debate over who's a person and who's not a person and what obligations do you have to a person who's physically incapable of feeding themselves are, can you just let them starve to death? And again, it comes back to this lifeboat situation, right? If you're the lifeboat for a severely retarded person who cannot feed himself, um, can you just say, tough luck, kid? I'm not doing anything. And this, I think Rothbard recognized these are very tough issues, and he at least wanted to bring it up, because I think he's right that people mostly just ignore it unless they're involved in these issues, uh, professionally or legally. And there's really very little discussion of it among people who really want to talk about public policy from a more theoretical point of view. Well, and of course, maybe it's just that sometimes life is really hard, and we're looking for perfect answers to imperfect solutions. And it seems to me the best answer we have is to, to build a society that's wealthy and healthy enough where 
uh, you know, we have fewer people having abortions and we have more ability to care for children or to adopt out children or whatever it might be. I'm not sure that there's always this uh, perfect libertarian answer. And I don't think we should be required to provide one because God knows the statists are not. Um, a, a couple of points. First of all, I think some people will read this chapter saying it all sounds like, you know, keep your religious ethics out of my uh, libertarian theory. And that's not what's going on here. I mean, this whole book is a normative ethical treatise. And so Rothbard's whole conception of the right of self-ownership and therefore the prohibition against aggression on the person is rooted in, a, in an ethical, really a, a Christian ethical uh, point of view. So I don't think this this chapter escapes that. I, I do think logic ought to be practiced without a religious overlay, but I'm not sure that the conclusions we draw from our logical analysis uh, can be so neatly severed. Um, one thing you brought up is this idea, what about, the, is there sort of a contract? Has has the woman or the, the couple having sex sort of invited the baby into the womb? And he says, no, no, no. And this is an important point to make on his behalf. He says no, because first of all, the baby's clearly not a contracting party. You don't have some, you didn't enter into a contract with this thing that can't yet uh, address its own personhood. And second of all, you can't alienate your will. And, you know, we can't force people by contract to sell themselves into slavery. And we can't, uh, by contract, implicit or explicit, force the woman to sell herself into carrying a baby to term. So that's a couple of his arguments. And I think a really important argument for those of you who have the book on the HTML version at page 99 is where he says, you know, there's a difference between self-ownership and, and a right to life. Now, that's sort of the Republican conservative cry against pro-choice is there's a right to life. And he says, well, there's not a right to life. There's a right to ownership of your body and your person, especially the physical part of it. But that doesn't imply that you have a right to draw others into your care and feeding. And so an attempt to reconcile this and to answer the lifeboat situation uh, was done by Walter Block, whom Ryan mentioned, and he came up with this idea of evictionism, which as of this writing, now again, Rothbard's writing this book more in 74 and 75, even though it comes out in 82. Uh, at that point, Rothbard hadn't come up with, but he does address it later in his career, sort of answering and discussing with Walter. Uh, but Ryan, maybe the best we can do, and I don't want to belabor this chapter because there's, you know, people just disagree about abortion. I don't know what else to say. Uh, not only whether it's a person, but if it is a person, what is that? necessarily mean. Um, maybe the best we can do is a uh, very localized common law system where we, we deal with these things, not in bright line tests, but uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. And I know that's not going to be satisfying to a lot of people. Well, in uh, social convention, it goes well beyond just abortion, right? In that uh, Rothbard talks a little bit about here about, well, clearly the parents should not be allowed to abuse the child. Okay, well, what constitutes abuse then, right? So they'll, they'll say, well, keep, keep your religion out of it. Okay, well, uh, let's, let's humor the religious aspect of it for a second, right? It's so uh, is, um, is it abuse... Uh, when you have your baby circumcised, right? Now, a lot of people would say, ah, yes, mutilation of the child, abuse, let's outlaw it. Okay, mm -hmm. well, that effectively outlaws Judaism. And so is there a downside to that? Um, I would argue that yes, there is a downside to that. 
And and then this gets exactly to what you're saying, right? Are there should we allow communities to even exist? That is enclaves of Jews who practice circumcision, or should we make sure that that that's just not allowed anywhere? That's it. That strikes me as something you just can't ignore and just say, well, that that counts as abuse, so therefore it shall be outlawed always and forever. And anyone who practices circumcision is a horrible monster. Um, at the same time, though, because they oh, just religious people believe in that sort of crazy thing. Well, uh, okay, let's look at someone then who says that uh, it's good and and virtuous and honorable to if your child expresses interest in playing with dolls, your male child, you then convince your male child that uh, he is in fact a girl and should transition to being a girl uh, as soon as possible. And so therefore, whereas those those Jews only cut off a part of the child's genitals, we will completely remove them and assist the child in making the transition to being a girl. But that's non-religious, so that's okay, and that's not abuse. So you can see here is that it's a, <laughs> what are the local social conventions? What do we think constitutes abuse and what doesn't? And uh, until we approach that issue, right, the sentence in the Ethics of Liberty that says, well, we can all agree that parents shouldn't be allowed to abuse their children. Well, obviously, there's way much more to that that's not being addressed in the issue. And this can only really be decided on broader ideological and religious lines. Um, and it's just never enough to say, well, keep your religion out of it because, OK, well, I've labeled my ideology not a religion, even though my ideology, of course, comes with all sorts of things like transgenderism and communism and obligations to the state and all of this sort of stuff. But it's non-religious. It doesn't involve God. So therefore, it's purely objective and there's no gray area there at all. I mean, obviously, that's that's a crazy position to take. And so we can't just shunt aside anything in here that seems like it's religious and Therefore, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't let religion intrude upon our views of what is ethical and what is moral and and what are your obligations to others because that's just built into any sort of human society, and the, really the only way to address that is find ways to actually deal with issues of differences in social convention between different communities because until we do that, um, you know, <laughs> we've really got no functioning uh, mm -hmm. system political system at all and deal with those differences peaceably. That's the main thing which of course requires us all to swallow hard and accept some things we don't like in other people. I don't know what more to say to that other than uh, a common law concept strikes me as uh, much better than a top-down system. And with, with that said, I wanna talk about the chapter 16, Knowledge, True and False, which is where Rothbard gets into his uh, defamation argument. So this is perhaps the part of the book where I have the most unease and I've talked about this in a couple different uh, sessions at the Libertarian Scholars Conference a couple of years ago up in New York City. So, Ryan, just briefly, Rothbard says, your reputation is not something you own. You don't have, it's not like self-ownership. It's other people's thoughts and feelings and opinions and attitudes about you. And since you can't own that, if they say something terrible about you, for example, if they defame you, you ought not to be able to sue them and get damages or, or, or enjoin them to stop saying that in a libertarian legal system because that's not a property right. So that's, that's basically the quick and dirty Rothbard on defamation. And I would add Walter Block on defamation. Yes. Uh, Walter seems to take uh, exactly the same position. You know, I've, I am uh, torn on the issue in terms of what should the ultimate position be. Uh, clearly, one can see that potential damage 
uh, could occur. For, let's say a highly influential person in the community then just starts talking trash about you and wages a whole campaign uh, to defame you uh, and to convince others to not do business with you. Uh, you could see how real harm would be inflicted in those cases. Now, I've written a couple of columns. Uh, I've never actually addressed the theoretical issue here or expressed a solid position on it. I've always looked at it from more of a application standpoint. So I've written two or three articles saying that, like, uh, I'm not going to take a position on whether your reputation exists, uh, how and what way your reputation exists in the minds of other people, and it's not something you can own or whatever. I've really looked at more the, the legal application of it in terms of how defamation laws have been used really uh, to silence people in many cases and how... Um, they've been used by government institutions to silence dissent um, and the potential for abuse. But that's something very different from the actual concept of defamation. And I can certainly see the position that Rothbard is taking. And from a logical point, it's hard to argue with that there. And the, the question is, is... The harm caused by another person when they defame you, is it really from them saying things mm -hmm. or does it come from something else mm -hmm. such as, say, uh, is there another step there that, that we're missing and is really the key component in there other than just the speaking of the words, right? Because there's another step that has to happen where the person actually believes the person that is saying the defamatory things. And maybe the real problem is in that that step where the people decide to believe it and act upon it. But mm -hmm. um, that's not there's I think there's still a lot of room for debate there. I just tend to be more of an absolutist in terms of I prefer the Anglo-Saxon, especially the American Anglo-Saxon habit of taking. Well, the British have really gotten really bad on this, but the American Anglo-Saxon position that that it's really difficult to prove defamation. You have to prove that uh, what they said was wrong and that people knew it was wrong and they intended to harm and so on. I think it's good mm -hmm. that we have to s jump through all those hoops in order to prove any sorts of real harm and to actually hold people legally accountable for that. It's better, I think, to err on the side of laissez-faire and application. Well, I always used to think that too, and I think I'm changing. I mean, my impulse is to say, well, I'd rather have the wild, wild west of free speech. Let people just say whatever they want, let the chips fall where they may. And people like Walter Block would say there are mechanisms available to us. In other words, if somebody's out there saying false things in a defamatory manner, then they're subject to their own reputational risk. And there could even be truth agencies that go out there and debunk things. And, uh, you know, so all that's very interesting. But I, I'm starting to wonder, though, you know, the idea of what constitutes harm in a digital age, not in, a, in an analog age. I mean, Murray wrote this book in the 70s. There was no internet. There was no digital sphere. And I know what Murray Rothbard would say, and I know what Walter Block does say, which is that, you know, principles don't change with technology. And also principles don't scale. They're the same regardless of the uh, situation. We're not uh, moral relativists. We have principles which are unchanged and unyielding. And that's what makes them a principle. But let me give you this hypo, Ryan. Uh, two guys are in a bar. Well, one of them gets angry at the other. A, a short skirmish ensues. One guy punches the other guy in the nose, and the bar fight is quickly broken up. Okay. 
So the guy, the, the punch E goes home and the next day he looks in the mirror and his nose really hurts and it's sore and it's a little black and blue. But after a couple of days, it goes away and he, he was a little embarrassed in the bar. But beyond that, two or three days later, he's basically as good as new. Well, in the Rothbardian system that we discussed with Stefan Kinsella a couple of weeks ago, both in terms of aggression and uh, proportionality, the guy who got punched might have a legal right to get some money from the puncher or to punch him back equally or something like that, right? You'd, you'd work it out at common law. But let's say instead of two guys fighting in a bar, let's say instead of being punched in the nose, let's say someone with a huge Twitter following uh, calls someone else a pedophile, right? Probably the worst thing you can call someone. Right? You know, and so uh, this, then let's just say for sake of argument that that's untrue. The person termed a pedophile is not. And it's just an outrageous thing. But because... Uh, the the person making this false statement has 10 million Twitter followers. I mean, it just gets retweeted and people, you know, millions of people around the world see this, not just a couple people in a bar witnessing a bar fight. And so millions of people see this. And as a result, the the person, uh, you know, people shy away from this guy and they say, oh my gosh, I, I'm not sure, but I heard he might be a pedophile. They don't even confirm it. And so he loses his family he loses his job and his income therefrom. His wife divorces him. He loses his house. Uh, he's shunned from proper society and you know, has to work the rest of his life at some menial job and loses a career. So that's, a, that's an enormous harm. That person's life has been just absolutely destroyed and uprooted in a way that's actually far worse than you know, a pretty mild punch to the nose. And yet that, that punch to the nose gives rise to legally actionable suit in Rothbard land and the charge of pedophilia does not in the second scenario in Rothbard land. You see how this is a tough one, Ryan? Yeah, I definitely see the distinction there, right? Uh, and we and David Gordon's discussed this a little bit, right? What constitutes real harm, especially harm that involves going through the 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 cost of a lawsuit and what sort of remediation can be offered. And, and uh, interestingly, David says, well, a lot of it depends on local social convention, right? This guy, he, he punched me in the nose, right? You could see how in the 19th century, punching a person in the nose, uh, if you then tried to sue that person and go through all that rigmarole, you'd kind of probably be regarded as kind of a weird eccentric, right? <laughs> it's just some small time fight, right? But now you can, you can do something minor like that, you know, relatively minor, um, and and it, no one would think it was untoward to then sue that person for some sort of uh, redress. And so obviously social conventions can change considerably over yeah. time as to well. what constitutes uh, harm in those cases. So I think that's kind of an illustration of the point right there. Um, but, but OK, but let me just interject. Walter would admit that the guy who's called a pedophile is harmed. Mm -hmm. He would he would just say it's not actionable harm because that guy he doesn't. He doesn't have a, an ownership right. He doesn't own his wife's continued affections and and remaining married to him. He doesn't own his employer's uh, paycheck. He doesn't own the thoughts and feelings of those people who are now whispering about him and shunning him. I think that's what Walter would say. Well, I'm kind of thinking of it in terms of putting myself in the position of the guy who uh, calls the other person a pedophile, not because I have an interest in ruining anyone's life, right? But as an editor, 
So now clearly someone who just calls someone a pedophile, knowing it's untrue, just to ruin that person. We can all agree that person's a terrible person, scumbag. Uh, however, and I'm thinking in terms of how we have pointed out uh, some sketchy stuff in John Maynard Keynes's life that showed that Keynes had a fondness for underage males. Uh, and we're not the only ones that came up with this, but this uh, shows up here and there in some of the research about Keynes and so on. Now, uh, what if Keynes was still alive and sued us and said, well, that's not actually true, and you knew it wasn't true, and sued me personally? I could see, right, where I just said what I thought was true. Um, and now I'm being construed within the legal system as making an effort to ruin this person's life and say that as a result of what I said, this guy lost his job and so on. And so I look at it a little bit from the other side and that, okay, if maybe I can prove that this guy who, uh, so now going back, A calls B a pedophile, all right, what was his motivation and why did his wife leave him? And all of that. So I'm, I'm granting that clearly uh, harm was done, but but the question is, was it on purpose? Was it based on a lie? If it was done maliciously, uh, okay. But I, I'm trying to imagine just in the real world application too, if my uh, if someone out there calls me a pedophile, which. <laughs> Based on some of the emails I received, maybe has been done at some point. I'm trying to imagine a situation where my wife says, well, I guess I guess Ryan was a pedophile all along because this person I don't know said he was. So I'm just I'm just trying to imagine uh, the situation where it it does lead to all of that. Now, it is different, though. Let's say I was a public figure um, where uh, I was, say, some CEO, and I gave some money to the uh, anti-gay marriage. This is like a real thing, right? I was a CIO, and I gave money to the anti-gay marriage movement in California. Yeah, it was um, the guy from Mozilla. Right. He gave, a, he gave about $500 to that uh, proposition, which was in about 2008. So I'm later defamed along the lines of this guy hates all gay people, and he's an enemy of uh, equal rights, and he's just a hate monger. And so then this really affected his uh, career also. So I could see, right, clearly something bad happened to that guy after he was accused of all sorts of horrible things. And so I genuinely feel bad for that person um, because I don't think that person was really a hate monger or was really trying to hurt anybody with that. And so should he and, and clearly there was that was intended to be malicious also, right? People want to destroy him and keep him from getting um, a good job. And what sort of harm is there? I could see um, some real harm and a claim of real harm um, and possibly being able to uh, prove that this campaign of hate was waged against this person. Um, so, yeah, granted, that's a that's a tougher situation and I think that just by by a wave of the hand and saying, well, uh, all that just occurs in people's heads, maybe none of this counts as real harm. Uh, okay. But again, back to my old position, I, I think there's uh, it's better to, to err on the side of making that difficult to prove. However, I will grant, and I, I covered this in one of my earlier articles too, is that there is a just a practical benefit to defamation laws in the sense of... Uh, in earlier ages, when it was not uh, generally done in the courts that you would address somebody for defaming you uh, through the legal process, 
you just ended up challenging them to a duel or something like that. Now, the church has always condemned dueling, uh, and many societies have seen it as barbaric, but many other societies have thought it acceptable among certain people. And so probably better than to have defamation suits than to have people running around uh, trying to stab each other uh, as, <laughs> as a means of correcting the defamation. So uh, maybe that really is progress. Um, but yeah, this is one of those sticky issues uh, that uh, it's good, I think, that Rothbard's addressing it and maybe adds a little fuel to the file to my more skeptical side of the issue. But I think you could see, looking at the revenge example I just gave, why society would would create this legal category. Well, it's also a little strange that the principle doesn't uh, look at the degree of harm or the identity of the harmer and the harm e, right? Because in the United States, although this is potentially under attack, there's a case called New York Times versus Sullivan, which is still basically controlling law with regard to defamation suits. And basically what it says is that if you're a public figure, a famous person, you have to prove actual malice, which is really a, a high uh, standard to bear. It's you know, actual intent on the part of the defaming party. And so this protected people like Bill Clinton, for example, um, or excuse me, protected people who had said nasty things about Bill Clinton. But um, you know, in this day and age, New York Times versus Sullivan, I mean, what's What's a famous person? What's a public figure? Is it somebody with 200,000 Twitter followers, but that you know 99% of the public has never heard of? I mean, it's, it's awfully hard to figure out. And that's why I think, um, again, it's something that we're not going to solve here and, and now. And, it's, and we, we really have to, I think, appreciate and admire Rothbard for taking the leap and trying to cross some chasms here. And doing so in a way where he wasn't filling in every possible detail or what if. And he took a lot of heat at the time, uh, especially from others in the you know, broader free market and Austrian economics community for going into something that was not staying in his lane, I think is what they say these days. But Ryan, before we leave part two here, I just want to touch briefly on his just little two-page chapter on the rights of animals, where he basically says, you know, all the, all the self-ownership... Uh, concepts which we're coming up with in this book apply to human beings because of their nature and because animals have a different nature and because they lack volition and reason and, uh, uh, you know, this is sort of the same sense of fair play and justice that the concept of rights, which they cannot assert on their own behalf, doesn't apply to them. And I wanted to f find out whether you were in agreement. Well, that's, of course, very Aristotelian, right? It's in their, in their nature is different. But this takes us back to the issue of, right, can a severely handicapped person who can't really assert their humanity, do they have any rights? So we have – I work at a pig farm and uh, this is kind of where Aristotle comes in, right? You're working on a pig farm. The purpose of the pigs, the essence of the pigs in those cases is to be butchered for food. But if I at the same time just kick those pigs in the head or torture them for my own amusement – Aristotle would agree and I would agree that that's the wrong thing to do in that situation, that that's morally reprehensible. Do I think that those pigs have the same rights in the same way that a human does? Maybe not, but we could also all agree that it's wrong to torture pigs for no reason whatsoever and that uh, the proper thing to do is, is to uh, kill them as humanely as possible for the purposes of eating because uh, we need sustenance and so on. Same way, right? You come home and you kick your dog in the head. Well, you own your dog. 
Um, <laughs> but but that comes with certain responsibilities. And Aquinas actually would say these things about slavery too. Aquinas wasn't an absolutist against slavery, but he said that just because you uh, are a slave master doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to the slave, that you cannot actually compel that person in terms of conscience. You can't keep them from receiving the sacraments. There, there's a great limitations on that because of what it means to be a slave and what it means to be a slave owner. So Rothbard's sort of taking uh, a little bit of this and, and saying what it means to be an animal is different from what it means to be a human. And I would argue with that but I'm not sure that that is true because of what animals do or what humans do. That's that's a different position. So because humans then speak up and they can argue in their own defense and take actions that, that show and demonstrate that they're human beings, whereas a pig doesn't do those things, um, that works for fully functioning human beings, but it doesn't work for a human being who can't speak or can't move or is in a vegetative state, for example. And and can we then just starve those people to death or can we torture them because they haven't uh, demonstrated their humanity to us? And uh, he does kind of just make some statements there, right, with kind of a wave of the hand of that. Well, uh, children are potential people, so they're not like animals which aren't potential people. <laughs> but, of course, children, including like tiny ones, infants and toddlers and so on, I would define as people right now, even even if they're incapable of arguing and telling me, hey, don't do that thing I don't like. Uh, I want to I go uh, play at the beach, buddy. Well, they can't say that uh, and they can't really express their their opinions or their desires, at least with words, I would argue that children can, or tiny babies can, in fact, express desires of some sort. Mm. But uh, I, I don't think this is nearly complete enough of a discussion of the distinction between humans and animals as used here. And so while it's good, again, for, I think, getting the ball rolling on the discussion, it's a short chapter, too. And so I can't imagine Rothbard thinks this is the last word on it. But uh, certainly it would be a mistake then to read this chapter and say, yep, right, this is uh, clearly animals are unlike humans for this reason, time to move on. So uh, certainly more work needs to be done there. Well, and our guest next week on the show, Dr. Roberta Modogno, is a big animal lover. <laughs> so I'll be interested in her take on this as a Rothbardian. Uh, look, I don't want to belabor it. I agree with it conceptually. Um, and I also agree with it when I say it, meaning Rothbard's take. Uh, in the sense that I'm not sure where animal rights would lead. It would be an awfully slippery slope. But man, is it tough when you look at, you know, a, a really intelligent, a dolphin, uh, certain chimpanzees, etc. It, it's it's not something that sits well with me, even though I see the logic. And of course, uh, you know, any, anybody who kicks a dog is about as low as it gets in my book. Um, so all that said, you know, again, Rothbard is writing a, a a philosophical and ethical treatise here, and he's not afraid to shine a light into the dark corners and ask some of the tough questions. And somebody needs to be doing it. And it's really pretty shocking. You know, again, you'd think we would have had all this figured out by 1500 or so, but here he is in the 70s, um, and we're still wrestling with it today. So part three of this book is titled The State Versus Liberty. And here he gets into some essays, uh, including one on the nature of the state, where I think, you know, at the, about the same time he was writing his uh, essay, which we've already covered on the Human Action Podcast, Anatomy of the State. So this is this is sort of the same time period where he's coming up with his ideas. 
quite radical at the time, although, of course, there was already an existing tradition of anarchism. But in the mid-20th century uh, or the second half of the 20th century, to say that the state is a criminal gang, that it owns a monopoly over violence in a particular territory, that it is per se and by its nature aggressive, all these things that he's saying, which, you know, we all of us who read Rothbard are very comfortable and familiar with, uh, you know, still pretty rough stuff for the general public. Yes, the, clearly this would have been something that you weren't hearing in school uh, back, back <laughs> in the 70s or 80s. And you still probably aren't hearing it in school today, but I think maybe you would hear it a little bit more often. And uh, you do hear it, I think, maybe even from the left, uh, criticisms of the whole nature of the state is immoral and so on. And uh, a, a lot of those arguments I don't actually agree with in terms of their foundations and where they're trying to take it. But there's definitely seems to be more broad thinking in terms of this, because because uh, yes, in the mid 20th century, we all agreed that the American state was completely virtuous and wonderful, and that it uh, it uh, diminished the amount of evil in the world, and that you would be nuts to not see the value of the current international order as dominated by the U.S. and so on, and a lot of that thinking was dominated by uh, Cold War thinking as well. So. Writing uh, this back in the 70s and 80s, this would have been uh, a nice uh, breath of fresh air for people who maybe had their doubts about the state. And uh, a lot of what he talks about here is uh, what you and I cover in our podcast on anatomy of the state and the origins of the state and the problems with it and so on. Uh, but Rothbard, of course, he brings out a lot of the older arguments from the 19th century, like uh, from Lysander Spooner, who I like quite a lot and uh, is a good writer as well, and makes a lot of good common sense articles and pointing out all of the problems with uh, the prevailing orthodoxy about why you should consider the state to be this wonderful, moral and legitimate thing. Uh, so there are a variety of different arguments that he's making here. But this section is nice in that all too often, I think a lot of people, again, uh, who are trying to argue things along the lines of laissez-faire, they, they tend to focus really just on real super basic things. Should there be a leash law in my town? And uh, I can't stand these tyrannical city councilors who won't let me uh, let my dog play in the park. And oh, look, they're charging me an outrageous amount of money for trash service. And okay, well, those those are important issues too. But Rothbard in this section is trying to cover things like nuclear war and the very existence of the state and taxation. And I, I it, it keeps making me think of Rothbard's sort of motto from this period, which was, uh, taxation is theft, war is murder, conscription is slavery. And uh, he said this in more than one place. And I think that's a good starting point for a lot of this, in that it sounds maybe simplistic the way he states it. And I could see how people who don't aren't inclined to a radicalism will think, well, that's just a crazy way to put it. But I think once you start to delve a little bit deeper into to Rothbard's arguments here, and he has actual arguments addressing each of these topics, of course— um, there, he raises a lot of pretty uh, important issues in very trenchant ways because most people just never even really address the issue of is the state legitimate and uh, is what it's doing moral and do I have a moral obligation to obey the state? And uh, certainly a lot of moral philosophers have addressed those issues. And this is a perennial issue in Christianity too, is when am I obligated to obey the state? 
you certainly will find some Christians say always and everywhere, and God put those people in that position, so you have to do what they say. But that's not really the orthodox historical view. And so this has been, especially in the West, a constant matter for debate. And I, I think it's good that Rothbard brings it into the realm of um, the, the sort of libertarian readership that he's trying to address. So in today's world, the world in front of us, what are some examples maybe where we would think under Rothbardian principles, you shouldn't abide by these state edicts? Well, certainly if the state wants you to do something immoral, right, which would be a justification for not doing what you're told. And then, but then the question is, what is immoral? Now, he would say uh, conscription would certainly fall uh, under that. Uh, where then, okay, well, now we decided that you're going to go to the other side of the planet and you're going to shoot some person in his own village there. And But we as the state have declared that to be moral and good, so now you have to do it. So that could be a case where you're certainly not morally obligated to do that. Um, you, he could also argue certainly that tax collection, right? <laughs> Are you, uh, if you say that the state tried to make you uh, collect taxes in some way or to be responsible for doing that? Would that be morally obligated? Or are you morally obligated to even pay taxes then? Well, if they're using taxation for certain purposes, you could argue not. In fact, uh, Catholics have done this in America, like Brent Bozell, um, the older one, not the not the guy who's currently involved in, in media activism and so on. Um, he, when the U.S. Supreme Court made abortion legal, uh, he had uh, created a whole movement saying, well, we're no longer morally obligated to listen to this American regime anymore because uh, they're clearly a uh, immoral group of people and, and pushing immoralism on everybody. And so there are many cases then where individuals might come to the conclusion that what they're asking me to do is immoral and I'm not required to do it. And however, in the mid-20th century, again, this, I think the pendulum had swung much more in favor of, well, you're not morally culpable if the state tells you to do it and you should do it. And there are all these exceptions to if the state tells you to do something, it's different than if just some other individual person tells you to do it. Now, I think that historically that was understood by a lot of people, especially philosophers. But I think a lot of that had been lost in, in the mix in terms of the rise of nationalism and this idea that uh, the state can compel you to do immoral things. And that's, that's perfectly fine. And that's, pro that's a modern way of thinking. But I think Rothbard does a lot of good work in trying to undo that. Well, it certainly is an idea that's been lost. I mean, that's what the Ron Paul campaigns were all about was saying that, you know, the same things we find important in individuals like killing or counterfeiting or uh, murder or stealing or whatever it might be are equally abhorrent when a, a group of people gets together and calls itself a government and does that. So, I mean, I think that's a point that is still shocking and radical to a lot of people and not easily accepted. I mean, we tend to, to consume media and read books that uh, back up our own worldview. And those of us who are liberty-minded, we've heard that a lot and we think that way. We view the state through that lens, but most people don't. I think it's important to understand and also the this notion that the state is a predator towards individual citizens 
and that it is at best parasitic, at worst, you know, murderous. Uh, this can apply between governments as well. So Rothbard has this neat little chapter on relations between states, which is really pretty fascinating because, among other things, Ryan, you know, he he says, hey, look, you can be murderous. You know, a state can be murderous towards another state too, not just in terms of its people. But he says, you know, he brings up this great point. Why is it that nobody considers, you know, the United States to be in an impermissible state of anarchy vis-a-vis Canada and England? We say, no, no, those are, those are different sovereign bodies. So why can't we say that all the way down to the individual level as well? It's a pretty, pretty novel way to put it, I thought. Right. A lot of people unfamiliar with this uh, have lost sight of the fact that it's just an established concept in social science that a state of anarchy exists in any situation where there's not a, uh, a political authority of some kind that hands down and is the chief arbitrator. So this obviously is what exists in the international sphere is that there's there's not a judge, there's not a legislature, there's uh, not a monarch who ultimately hands down to all of the different actors in the system what is the proper way to behave. And so if if state A does something bad to state B, there isn't a third party sitting above both a state A and state B that can hand down the final decision and, and decide, well, B, you did harm to A, so now B, you have to give a bunch of stuff to A. This is settled then through negotiation or uh, through sometimes warfare, through some other method because there's there's no one who's there to make the final decision. And so that's just a state of anarchy. And this is of course, a known concept in international relations and anyone who works in that field. And so it helps also illustrate the fact that the way a lot of people use the term anarchy, right, as just a state of chaos and, and just complete lawlessness uh, has never actually been true for people familiar with, with the term and its application. That We wouldn't even argue that total lawlessness exists between states. There is international law. There are some accepted uh, ways um, that you're supposed to behave between states. There are many violations, of course. Of this, just as there are many violations of law committed by states within their own borders. And so the question is, uh, how do you remedy those and how do we govern relations between these two states? And, and Rothbard, then, he doesn't, he doesn't bring any romance to it. He just addresses really the issue of let's look in, uh, at the reality of how states relate to each other and how that affects then the individual. And again, it comes back to the other parts of this section, which is states, okay, states can interact with each other, and wars are, are likely to happen, some sort of violent interaction. But the question is, how can we minimize the damage done to the individuals involved, and what are some ways that we can, can limit state power? And just as that's important in the relationship between an individual and the state that he lives under, this is important on relations between states because states also have people within them. And when wars occur, it hurts the people in usually in both states. And so he goes into a lot of work about just war theory and nuclear war and really trying to minimize the amount of damage done. And I think try to, to, to bring a nuanced view to it as well. It's one thing to just say, well, if we get rid of states, we won't have all these bad things happen anymore, which uh, history wouldn't really illustrate that. I mean, certainly we have non-state periods in history that preceded the state as we now know it, uh, where we had uh, tribes, for example, and extended families that provided the amount of government. And these were not without conflict, and these were not without injustice. Now, the state 
perhaps can bring about because it's a large uh, machine of sorts that that can kill a lot of people a lot faster than a, a bunch of isolated tribes spread over a large area 5,000 years ago. That is different to an extent. But Rothbard rejects this whole idea of, well, it's just a different uh, of degree. Um, he doesn't think that, yeah, okay, it's immoral at the large level, um, so therefore it's moral at the small level. He's trying to really tackle this issue of how can we really make relations between states a little bit more tolerable for people. But for all the regional conflicts, which still exist here on Earth between states, I mean, the overwhelming, uh, more typical example is state of peaceable or peaceable states between nations. Why, why isn't the United States and Canada, for example, constantly at each other's throats on the brink of war and having to endlessly go to some sort of uh, UN or international tribunal to settle all these simmering disputes? I mean, that's not our relationship. Even when Trump was sort of sniping at Trudeau on Twitter, I mean, that's, that doesn't characterize most relationships between most states. I mean, we have lots of examples where this just kind of works. Yeah, this is absolutely true. And it's, it's kind of silly how anytime you talk about, say, secession uh, in the context of the West or in the United States, people will, uh, not all people, but certainly some people will say things like, well, well, then, of course, obviously, a civil war will erupt between Texas and the rest of the United States. Uh, the correct question is, well, then why haven't Canada and the United States been constantly at war? Is it just because Texas used to be part of the United States that war is somehow required because it's been more than 200 years that Canada and the U.S. have been at peace now, and they're right next to each other. Well, you can argue, well, the U.S. is much more powerful than Canada, so Canada is afraid of the U.S. and so just does whatever the United States says. Well, that's not true. The Canadian regime doesn't just do whatever the United States tells it to do. Moreover, for most of that history uh, where Canada was next to the United States— Canada, as uh, a close ally, and may, and some, and for much of that, even just a, like a, a part of the British Empire, uh, was evenly matched with the United States. It's not like the United States was telling Britain what to do in the 19th century. And yet, after 1815, these countries lived in a state of peace uh, f forever. Uh, there, yeah, there were some diplomatic incidents, and there was some competition, and so on. But this idea that uh, the only reason they've been at peace is because Britain's been afraid of the United States the whole time. It's nonsense. We can point to many cases where countries that were more or less evenly matched and were great powers decided to live in peace with each other. And you can see that in the growth of uh, relations between France and the United Kingdom, where for many centuries, of course, these countries hated each other and competed with each other and had many conflicts with each other, many of them bloody but by the 19th century, they were clearly making an effort. Much of it that occurred through efforts at increasing free trade between the UK and France. Uh, but that they reached a point where they decided these are permanent allies and they're not at war with each other, even though they both could have wars with each other and the outcome would be dubious in the sense of, right, it's not clear who would win a war. So we can't say that one's afraid of the other and that France just does whatever the UK says or vice versa. Why aren't they in a state of war all the time? And if you say, well, it's because the United States rules over the whole international uh, arena. OK, well, then why weren't they at war for the 50 years prior to 1945? This whole theory that all independent countries are, are at each other's decks all the time just doesn't uh, hold much water. Well, Ryan, I'd like to make one last point. 
and get your thoughts on this. A lot of us tend to think that Murray Rothbard just came out of the womb kicking and screaming as an anarchist, that that was just in his DNA and he was always like this. But of course, as this book uh, points out, that's not true. He went through the first several decades of his life all the way through his PhD at Columbia, um, various forms of uh, ideological perspectives and conservatism and etc. And he found out about the old right of not of uh, Nock and Mencken. But really, it's not until about 1949, when he is beginning to attend the seminars of Ludwig von Mises in New York City, he's talking with some of his old grad school pals, uh, left liberals. And he says that he has this breakthrough that he converts to anarchism with an exercise in logic. And so while the ethics of liberty is very much a book about normative ethics, it is also a book about logic. So for those of you who listened to a show a few weeks ago, we uh, covered his betrayal of the American right, which is really a fascinating book and one of my favorites. Um, he says his liberal friends basically gave him this kind of uh, logical puzzle. They say, well, what's the legitimate basis, Murray, for your idea that we have a limited government that exists only to protect person and property? Because Murray's talking in the, in the Ethics of Liberty about the inner contradictions of the state, why it's impossible to maintain a limited government. But he didn't always think that. So his liberal friends say, well, what's, what's the basis for forming this government that's only designed to protect person and property? And Murray answers, well, because people get together and decide to establish such a government. Okay. So his liberal friends say, but if they get together and decide to establish this government, why can't they also have that government uh, build steel plants or provide health care and uh, public housing and all kinds of other things. So it's it's sort of at that point, and again, we're talking about 1949, winter into 1950, several decades into his life, where he realizes that there's just this contradiction inherent in the idea of limited government. And I think that informs this entire part three of the ethics of liberty. Yeah, and Bastia made this point too, which is that a state should not be able to do something that a private person could never do, and we consider that moral. So a person can act in self-defense uh, to protect himself and his family. So then you could argue, oh, a state could do that too, um, in terms of uh, an organization that carries out the, the collective attempts at uh, maintaining self-defense among a group of people. Or... Uh, a state might then prosecute a criminal. And so if you just had a bunch of people get together voluntarily within a community and they all agree that uh, this murderer, that something needs to be done about them, few people would argue that these are immoral acts and that these are – and many would agree that these are necessary acts that have to be done to maintain order in society. But Bastia's point was, well, once you start getting over to – well, we'll just take some stuff from this one person who hasn't done anything criminal or hasn't aggressed against any other person. We'll just take some of their property and give it to another person. Now, Bastia would say, well, that's what's the difference between that and stealing? That, that there's a really a, a true qualitative difference between taking from one person, giving to another person, and another case, which is just prosecuting a murderer or a kidnapper – uh, in court and limiting then their abilities or acting in, in self-defense in some way against an aggressor. So there's a qualitative difference between those things. And Rothbard talks about that a lot, of course, in this book in terms of what's permissible behavior. Self-defense is, of course, permissible and that that's different from redistributing wealth. And so it's not just this arbitrary thing we've come up with, which is that 
well, states are only supposed to do X, Y, Z things. It's not just because we decided we like X, Y, Z. It's because X, Y, Z are fundamentally different than things that involve stealing from one group and giving to another. Those are just, they're not the same. And so the state should do one and not the other. Well, that wraps up the show for today, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to do one more show on this book. I think it deserves four, four episodes. We'll do that next week. In the interim, we'll go ahead and post a couple of show notes with this episode, uh, the talk I gave challenging the Rothbardian and Blockian conception of harm in the digital age was it applies to like big tech and defamation. So we'll link to that YouTube. We'll link to Ryan McMegan's recent article on defamation, how it's oftentimes uh, actually a tool of the state. And so perhaps we ought to be uh, you know, cautious in going to a more English or UK style system of that. And of course, those of you who are reading along, we're going to finish up part four, the end of this book, where he really deals with sort of a grab bag of some objections to anarchism. Uh, he Rothbard discusses Mises' utilitarianism. He discusses uh, Nozick's concepts of the of the state as sort of being immaculately conceived. And uh, really some fascinating stuff in part four. So that's going to be a fun discussion. Uh, I hope you manage to make the time to read this book because I think you're going to find it maybe sometimes infuriating, maybe sometimes a little black and white for your taste, but ultimately very, very re rewarding. And I think worthy of being considered uh, up there with Nozick and other philosophical thinkers of the 20th century. So all that said, Ryan, I want to thank you for your time. And I want to ask all of our listeners to have a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.